Grant, Lord, that through the spoken word and through the written word, we may behold the living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do please sit down. The Transfiguration. It's also on the same date in 1945, the day when an American aircraft, Enola Gay, dropped the first atom bomb over Hiroshima, which also produced a bright, shiny light and a cloud. The disciples were terrified in, with what they'd seen, the three of them that were there. They were both astonished at the vision, and then when the cloud came down upon them, the shining glory cloud of the Lord, they were even more terrified. Let me tell you a, a, a fictional story. Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick, Dr. Watson, went for a little break hiking in the hills, camping, and they pitched their tent and they went to sleep. And at one point, Holmes shakes Watson. Watson, are you awake? Uh, yes, Holmes, he said. Look up, what do you see? Well, I see the stars in the sky. I see the millions and millions of stars in the sky. Yes, Watson, and what do you deduce from that? Well, said um, Watson, I suppose, it means there are probably other civilizations out there and we're not alone in this great universe. No, rather testily, said Holmes, what you should observe is someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> you may well have heard that, but they'd missed the point and the disciples rather missed the point. And often, frequently, in the way in which this passage is interpreted in sermons, we miss the point. It's not about Peter being a complete blunderer, an idiot, and speaking because he couldn't think of anything better to say. Oh, sh uh, shall we make three tents? It's not about mountaintop experiences and valley experiences, particularly because they come down from this mountain to discover that the disciples they'd left behind had made a complete mess of trying to, dis cast, uh, trying to heal a paralytic, um, a, a, a boy with what they would describe as a demon. It sounds actually like an epileptic fit, but they failed. It's not about their failure. It's not about mountaintop to valley experiences. It's not even particularly about Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah and about the conversation being the fact that he now has to go on to Jerusalem. The word actually used in the text is his exodus to Jerusalem and it's deliberately designed to pick up the same exodus as the Jews coming out of Egypt to the promised land, that there was an exodus to come. That's there in the text, but it's not the main point of the text. And neither is the main point of the text that this was Jesus, the ministry of Jesus being validated by the law and the prophets coming to witness to the fact that Jesus is, it was Jesus' ministry that was to take on from here, from Moses as representing the law and Elijah as the last of the prophets. And also, incidentally, to fulfill a prophecy that before the Messiah comes, Elijah would reappear. That's all there, but that's not really what it's about. 
is about glory. And it's a subject that often we slide through because we read references to glory in the New Testament and the Old Testament and we just sort of seem to slide over it. I was walking to the station one morning to catch the train to London for a meeting. And I, the, the, from where we live, we do a shortcut. You don't walk all the way around the ring road. Um, you go through a car park and along the side of uh, uh, the Citizen Advice Bureau and through another bit of car park um, and then cross Station Road and eventually you walk straight into the forecourt of the station. And as I was walking along, along Station Road coming this way, uh, was a young woman in her, in her 20s. And as I was walking along and I was looking at her, her face started to change. Her whole face opened up. Her colouring changed. She looked up. And I thought, why she changed? And then I saw come in the other direction a young man. And they met, they embraced, and turned, she tur he turned, and they both walked off in that direction. She had been transfigured by the vision of her partner, her boyfriend, her husband. I don't know what the relationship was. It was clearly very affectionate. And it lit up her whole face. Transfiguration is not something that only happens to Jesus. It happens to us as well in other ways. Moses, when he came down from the mountain, from Sinai, as he came down from the mountain in Exodus with the tablets in his hand, he didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. In fact, Moses had to veil his face. The, the Israelites couldn't stand looking at him, not because of his glory, but because of the glory of God that shone from his face. And I was reading some years ago, actually somebody quite famous, and I cannot remember at all who it is, but was talking about her upbringing and how her father used to go regularly on a Sunday morning to the early communion at the parish church. And she said, as he came back from that eight o'clock communion, his face shone. Now, I'm sure he was unaware of that, but his daughter had observed it, that that meeting around God's table enabled this man's face to shine. And we, we misuse the term glory because we apply it to ourselves all the time, and it's either about becoming incredibly important, you're glorious because you've a because you're Stuart Broad and you've just retired from Test Match Cricket right on a high point and that is glorious. You think, oh, would it, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could be like that and have that sort of glory, some of us think. Or the glory of some of those competing in the, uh, the Women's World Cup at the moment. A glory that we attach to ourselves. Or a glory that somehow rather has a shine in the world and people look at us and think, Oh, look at that shining person. A fulfillment of glory of turning us into some sort of light bulb. That's not the glory that's talked about in either the New or the Old Testament, and it's not the glory that's talked about here. St. John, when he writes his gospel, right at the start, 
talks about the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory, that of an only Son of a Father. St. Paul also talks about all of us with unveiled faces, picking up that idea of Moses having to be veiled. We will see the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. Not directly, it would be too much for us, but as a reflection in the mirror. And we will be transformed from one image, from one degree of glory to another. The glory that comes from God that's reflected to us. And then a little later, John refers to in the first letter. With God's children, what we will be hasn't yet been revealed. What we do know is this, that when it is revealed, we will be like him. That the glory of the Son with the Father, that we will share that glory because we are in Christ. It's not our glory, it's his glory. I remember hearing a black African preacher in the States using this verse and saying, you realize that in heaven the angels aren't going to know whether it's you or whether it's Jesus, because you're going to be like him. And they'll say, is that one Jesus or is that somebody else? Because you will be like him. That's the wonderful heritage of glory which is there for us. But why did Jesus choose Peter, James, and John to go up that mountain? Why didn't he take them all for this wonderful experience? Why didn't he come back and do it again with others, if you like, taking a small group at a time so they, they got the benefit of this experience? Well, I don't think they did. And I don't think we do either. That for most of us, we don't have that sort of experience. It's probably just as well, otherwise we'd all be striving for it. It's something that is offered specially to some people. And there are people we know, and we read about them, and sometimes we only read about people whose spiritual experiences seem to be so wonderful, we wonder why we've been left behind. I remember reading um, a comment of the previous, um, whatever they call him, superior, um, I'm trying to remember which Roman Catholic, of the Dominican order. Actually, he's living in Oxford now. I've forgotten his name completely. He did a Lent course in the cathedral a bit ago. Um, but in touring round lots of places, he, he was touring in, in Australia and meeting Dominicans in Australia and was having a meal uh, with both male and females um, in the Dominican order. And they were talking about their, their wonderful visions of Jesus and how it filled their hearts with joy, etc., etc. And he said he went to his room afterwards thinking, that's never happened to me. Yes, there have been special moments in my life when I've known Jesus was closer than others, but I haven't had that sort of experience. And maybe it is for a few people. And maybe for Peter and James and John, they needed that particular experience because Peter was going to be the prime person to lead the mission to the Jewish people throughout the whole dispersion, throughout the whole of the land. And James would be leading the church in Jerusalem 
with the persecution that would break out there. And John would be the person who would interpret Jesus in his gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular tell you what Jesus did. John tells you who Jesus was. And so probably John needed to know that. That's why he could write in the first chapter, we beheld his glory as of the only son of a father. There are some who need that and there are others who don't. And sometimes we strive, if you like, for a spiritual blessing, which is actually not necessary for us. There are other blessings available. R.S. Thomas the Welsh poet and priest, difficult man, I think, to know, but one of his poems is called The Island and talks about an island and talks about a place and a chapel on the island where prayer has been valid and that our God is such a fast God. He's always leaving just before we arrive. This sense that, yes, God is here. God was here. God did do this, but somehow or other, I've arrived just after it. And that was R.S. Thomas's feeling. Peter had to accept the crucifixion. Just shortly before this period, when Jesus had predicted that he would go to, uh, to Jerusalem to suffer and die, Peter says, no, 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 Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Peter had to learn to accept it. But what's also interesting about this passage is Peter having said, oh, shall we build three tents? Jesus doesn't tell him off for that. Jesus doesn't contradict him or tell him, you know, that's a pretty stupid thing to say. It doesn't work like that. Because in a sense, it did. Because it was John, again, in the, in, in the first chapter of his Gospel, the word became flesh, and our translation is, and dwelt among us normally. Sometimes you'll find it reads, and tabernacled among us. I think that's the authorised version. The meaning behind that is the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And so the tent that Peter was wanting to build with Jesus on that mount was already there. He had pitched it there. So in a sense... Peter had already got things right. And so what about us? Where do we learn from it? Just as Peter said this, the vision of Moses and, and, and Elijah disappears and a great luminous cloud comes down. If you've ever been in, and I'm sure most of you have, in a, in a cloud when there's actually really bright sunshine, the whole cloud sort of is lit up with the power of the sunshine. But it terrified them because, of course, they knew that clouds in the Old Testament almost invariably was, were used to signify the presence of the Lord. We had that in our Old Testament reading, that one as the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days out of the clouds. When Jesus is taken up to heaven in a cloud, it's not vertical takeoff into a cumulonimbus cloud. It's the glory of God taking him away. And not surprisingly, when faced with the glory of God, our knees tremble 
and we're frightened. And we need to learn from the silence. We need to learn from the words, from the cloud. This is my son, listen to him. Be still, for that glory is revealed. That glory will be revealed in creation. It's God who said, again as Paul writes, it's God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, we will receive the glory. Don't know if you've ever been somewhere where there's been a, maybe a spectacular sunset or something, and, people, and, and you've seen a friend looking out into that sunset, and you're looking back at them, and their face shines with the glory of the sunset. It's not their sunset, it's the sunset's glory, but it's reflected in their face. And St. Paul says, the glory of Jesus Christ will be reflected in our hearts. All we need to do is listen to him and look to him. One of the early Christian saints, Bishop Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, in about 200 AD, Irenaeus said that the glory of God is a fully human being, a human that looks to Jesus and shines with the glory of God. There's a chorus which we, some, we do sometimes sing, and we're going to sing it. You, I'm sure you know it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How many know it? Wave your hand if you know it. Quite a few. Right. Follow me. <laughs> the, the music doesn't work for this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.